Well, good evening, everyone. Good to see you tonight. Trust you're having a good day. <clears throat> it's a warm one. Just, uh, it's preparing for tomorrow, right? It's going to be not just warm, but hot tomorrow. It's hot today. Yeah, so... Anyway, I'm glad you're here tonight. We are on page 56 in our book, as we're going through the book of Colossians, headed for Philemon. Let's ask the Lord to bless our study together this evening. Lord, again, I thank you for the privilege to assemble in Jesus' name and to study together. We pray that our study would be fruitful. And so, Lord, as we go through the material, we just ask your blessing on it. And all the classes that are ongoing, just give grace to all the teachers and the helpers. We thank you for each one. And bless our labors, our ministry this evening. Praying in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, uh, note our theme here. The uh, supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. That's the, the theme of Colossians. And uh, <clears throat> we have noted uh, this duly as we have worked our way through the material. Uh, note, uh, we pick it up on page 56, middle of the page, on, uh, at Colossians 2.18, where he says, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshy mind. It's amazing how much attention angels get uh, out here. People get fascinated with angels and uh, yet, they are kind of anonymous in the scriptures. They're there. They may be here even tonight, but we don't see them. They don't make their presence known, and we're not focused on them. Uh, so note, I say here, it is difficult to know the precise nuance of the word translated cheat. Uh, the reason is because this is the only place in the New Testament this exact word is used. Uh, it is a word related to athletics. What complicates it is that the basic word is related to the meaning prize, but also to the word uh, umpire, to the meaning of umpire. So are we kind of going with the nuance of, of prize, being cheated of your reward, your prize, or uh, is something else in view related to this, this whole concept of, of uh, umpire? So the sense could be, don't let anyone disqualify you of your reward, that's your prize, through compromising the truth of Christ. That, that would make sense. But, uh, note under the reference there, but in context, the better sense is probably related to the idea of umpire. The idea then is don't let anyone rule against you, which would correspond to let no one judge you in verse 16. Don't let anyone make a legalistic call on you that says you are disqualified if you don't keep their legalistic rules. Paul is saying that you should not allow anyone to intimidate you in this way. The law has been done away with, so we don't need anyone playing God as umpire and making bad calls. Paul then launches into a further description of these false teachers. They were not only legalistic, they were also into mysticism. Now, what is mysticism? Well, it is what Paul describes in the next two verses. Characteristic of mysticism is it appeals to feelings or human intuition to determine what is spiritual. And that's a, that's a huge issue for our day as well. <clears throat> People so often are not going by sound doctrine. They're going by their feelings, uh, intuition. Uh, so note, uh, I quote uh, Gary Gilley here on page 57. The Gnostics taught that a few elite had received the gift of direct revelation through the Holy Spirit. These moments of inspiration took place through visions, dreams, encounters with angels. This divided the church into two classes, the haves and the haves-nots, uh, the truly spiritual and the unspiritual. The heart of modern-day mystics 
problems is found in these verses. They are basing their theology on experiences rather than on the foundation of Jesus Christ as found in his word. Uh, so note, uh, skip the MacArthur quote, uh, mysticism emphasizes knowing spiritual truth by subjective and internal feelings or experiences rather than going by the objective word of God. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about mysticism. I'm not against feelings, emotions, or experiences. I had a feeling some time back. Just kidding. But uh, the problem is when these things become the engine that is driving what you believe rather than being the caboose that lines up with proper doctrine is found in the word of God. Uh, what we believe uh, should be governed by the word of God, not by our, our feelings. Uh, so no, uh, note there, uh, Paul now describes these mystics uh, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. So these guys are definitely into angels. Uh, note the expositors quote there. In the Greek, the word for false humility and the expression worship of angels are governed by the same preposition. That is to say, the heretics probably insisted that their worship of angels rather than the supreme God was an expression of humility on their part. Oh, we're, we're not you know, about the, the ultimate God here. You know, all these emanations, these lesser beings, kind of finally the ones connecting to earth. So we're into the lesser emanations, humbly, you know, humbly. So so no, no, no. Uh, Gnostic thought saw the supreme God as far removed. They saw a long chain of intermediaries between the supreme God and the lower angelic beings with uh, something of deity represented in each of them. Supposedly, because of their humility, they would approach God through these lesser beings rather than approach God directly. Paul calls this false humility. It's not genuine biblical humility at all. Actually, it's arrogance because it defies the inspired word of God that says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator. It's not a whole series of them. And we know that to be Jesus Christ. A similar error is when people go to Mary instead of going directly to Jesus. They pray to Mary because that is considered more humble than going directly to Jesus or God. They think Jesus would certainly not say no to his mother, and so if they can just get her uh, to address Jesus for them, they will get what they want. And so uh, kind of an application there. Um, all that claims to be humble is, is not humble. So, okay, let's go to page 58. <clears throat> and uh, note there under the reference at the top, under the Hebrews 1.14 reference, angels do minister on the believer's half, but we are not to worship them. We're not to worship them. We don't pray to them. Uh, we are not to be preoccupied with them. Uh, they, by design, carry on their ministry quietly, mostly anonymously, in accordance with God's purposes. So, uh, like I say, mostly anonymously. Uh, angels are doing their thing. They are, they are ministering spirits uh, sent forth to minister to the children of God. But exactly what they're doing for us all the time, I don't know. It'll be interesting to find out in eternity, I guess. But notice he continues uh, describing these false teachers, intruding into those things which he has not seen. Actually, the better manuscripts, that is the older ones, say, uh, which he has seen, the mystic has spiritual experiences. He may see uh, things, that is, have vision, visions. He throws himself around recklessly in this spiritual realm. And even though he thinks his experience is with holy angels, he does not realize that actually he is dealing with demons that transform themselves into angels of light. He thinks he's receiving special revelation beyond what the simple folks are just holding to, uh, the Bible. But in reality, such a person is deceived. And he continues, vainly puffed up in his fleshy mind. You see, for the mystic, knowing spiritual truth is about feelings and experience. And that's his authority. 
his authorities, his feelings and experience. And again, I, I hate to launch off on the charismatic movement so much of the time, but so much of it is in that category. Uh, you know, we don't know sound doctrine, but I've had this experience and that trumps everything. Uh, that's the sense here. Because of his experience prompted by his fleshy mind is real, he gets a big head. His whole orientation is governed by a fleshy mind. This is not a spirit-filled believer walking in accordance with God's word. Jump down to the next paragraph. Just one problem. Where is Jesus in all of this? Jesus is left out. Jesus is not the authority. The mystic, mystic's experience is. This is not under the authority of Jesus. It's additional to Jesus. It says Jesus is not enough. It says, I need additional revelation. And again, so much of the charismatic movement is relying on further continuing additional revelation. Kind of fits the warnings here that we have in Colossians. Colossians 2.19. Not holding fast to the head, that's Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Here's the crux of the issue. These people are not holding on to Jesus, who is the head. Jesus is to be the authority. He's in charge. It's his word that is authoritative. And he tells us he is sufficient. He tells us all spiritual wisdom and knowledge are found in him. He tells us we are complete in him. He tells us he is enough. So when people are looking for more in the spirit realm, looking for visions, revelations, experiences, they are no longer holding to Jesus as the head. That's a really serious disconnect. Pun intended. All right. Go to the next page, page 59. In the bold at the top there, from whom the, all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. It is on the basis of the believer's connection with Christ that we are all nourished spiritually. We draw our life and energy from him. We're not looking to angels or dead saints. Christ fulfills us. Really, Christianity is very simple. It's all about Jesus Christ. Uh, jump down to the next paragraph. If there is to be growth, there must be life. To have life, you must be connected to the head, of course, by faith. Uh, and then as believers, we are to ever hold fast to the head, finding our spiritual needs met in him alone. And if believers are properly holding to the head, they will also properly be interacting with each other. Uh, when everything is working right, the head is in charge and the members of the body function accordingly in harmony. Okay, uh, jump down to the Leif Anderson quote. I don't always quote Leif Anderson because I've often disagreed with Leif. <laughs> but he's got a great quote here. The old paradigm taught that if you had the right teaching, you will experience God. The new paradigm says that if you experience God, you have the right teaching. You see, you see the emphasis, the change in emphasis? Before, the emphasis on right teaching. And out of that, I know God. This is now like I'm, I'm having an experience. And out of my experience, I know God. The, the, what's the governing authority? Is it the word of God or is it our experience? It must be the word of God. So all the rules we need are found in Jesus. All the revelation we need is found in Jesus. We are complete in him. Let no one deceive you. Let no one judge you. Let no one rule against you. <clears throat> so... Note uh, this quote from John Owen. Uh, Faith empties the soul of its own wisdom, understanding, and sufficiency so that it may act in the wisdom and sufficiency of Christ. Pretty good quote from the, the Puritan John Owen there. Uh, note, uh, skip the next sentence there. Then it says, uh, Colossians 2, 
uh, 20 through 23 deals with the topic of asceticism. Asceticism. But what specifically is the idea of asceticism? Well, Homer Kent has a good uh, summary. He says, asceticism is the religious philosophy that teaches that depriving the physical body of its normal desires is a means of achieving greater holiness and approval from God. Such practices as fasting, celibacy, withdrawal from society, abandonment, abandonment of possessions, and even self-flagation are used in varying degrees. And, you know, some of this just continues to come around a little bit. You know, we got certain areas here now. Well, you're more spiritual if you're fasting. Well, fasting, okay, we have a biblical precedence for it. But watch out, you don't fall into asceticism. Uh, Colossians 2.20, Therefore, if you died with Christ from the basic principles of the world, why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations? Uh, page 60. The phrase, if you died, is a first-class condition in the Greek, meaning it is understood as being true. So it could be translated as, since you died with Christ, affirming that indeed it is true. Skip the next uh, a paragraph there. Christ, as the believer's representative, died our death. He died for our sin. Even though Christ died for us, in faith we are so intimately identified with him that we are now seen as having died with him. Uh, jump down to the next uh, sentence there. As uh, believers who identify with Christ, we are now dead to the world. The world now has no say over our spiritual lives. The world has nothing to do with us. We are dead to the world. Notice, he says, from the basic principles of the world. Again, this, uh, we've talked about this before here in Colossians. The, the idea of basic principles is uh, the elementary things, uh, the basic principles of the world. Uh, jump down to uh, a couple of paragraphs there towards the bottom of the page. Uh, whether elementary principles specifically refers to spirit beings or to simplistic thinking, and it could be interpreted either way, related to worldly or materialistic thinking, the point is that ascetic rules that govern such thinking no longer apply to us as believers. For the believer, Christ is now the controlling reality of the universe and therefore of our lives. We died with him, and that reality has severed our relationship with all these basic principles of the world. We are no longer in bondage to such foolishness. He says then, why, as though living in the world, do you subject yourselves to regulations? So Paul acknowledges that, yes, believers are still living in the world physically, but as those who have spiritually died with Christ to the world and positionally have been transferred into the kingdom of Christ, why now would they still subject themselves to worldly ascetic regulations? And then he names them, uh, some of these things. Uh, page 61, note the bold there, the reference, Colossians 2.21. Do not touch, do not taste, do not handle. You see, asceticism is really shallow thinking. It doesn't realize that the core problem is not going to be solved by merely outward denial. Asceticism has the mentality that the physical body is the enemy and that the problem is physical. That misses the point. Uh, jump down, I've got a couple of points there right under that. Uh, therefore, the ascetic is all about the physical. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle. The ascetic air and view at Colossae evidently involved a combination of Jewish legalism and early Gnostic thought. Uh, skip the next couple of paragraphs. However, the qualifying phrase in the next verse, which all concern things which perish 
with the using probably indicates that Paul specifically has in mind at this point the Jewish dietary regulations. Do not taste evidently refers to dietary restrictions. Fasting in the New Testament is practiced on occasion. That's true. But it is neither commanded nor forbidden. Fasting is commonly associated with times of concentrated prayer, but fasting itself does not make one spiritual. Okay, let's go to page 62, top of the page. There may be health reasons uh, or wisdom reasons why one refrains, uh, but it's not a matter of being spiritual. Spiritually, if you give thanks, you can eat whatever you want to. Uh, In the older manuscripts, there is a descending order with the order being do not handle, do not taste, and do not even touch. Perhaps Paul is sarcastically making the point that if you carry this out to its logical conclusion, you will come to the point where in order to be holy, you will have to avoid everything even to the point of not touching anything. That gets to be very difficult. (laughs) You about have to leave the world in order to accomplish that feat. Uh, Come down... (laughs) Uh, to uh, the middle of the page here, uh, the second Gramacchi quote, Robert Gramacchi, God created sex, food, drink, and the desires uh, to have them. Sin occurs through their abuse, not by their use. And the Geneva Study Bible, Christians are to consider themselves pilgrims in this fallen world through which they momentarily pass as they travel home to God. The Bible sanctions neither monastic withdrawal from this world nor worldliness. So someone says, isn't there a place for self-denial? Well, yes, properly understood, there is. But properly understood, it is contrary to asceticism. Properly understood, it lines up with new covenant instructions and not man-made rules and regulations. Properly understood, it seeks by God's grace to live in light of who we are in Christ by grace versus trying to become spiritual in our own strength. So indeed, it is uh, biblical to say no to self and to say yes to following Christ. This is the stuff of conversion. It's the stuff of true discipleship. However, asceticism is a self-righteous thing. It's a matter of making yourself righteous through rigorous physical denial, and that according to a man-made agenda. Okay, next page, page 63. Here is the bottom line. Certainly as believers, we practice self-discipline, but the point is, We are not trying to achieve salvation or sanctification by our own efforts or within our own strength. Instead, by God's strength, we seek to live consistently with our already established position in Christ. And we do so on the basis of His strength, not our own. In other words, it's by grace. That's the difference. The fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Concerning the the regulations of do not touch, do not taste, and do not handle, Paul says, verse 22, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. So there you go. Uh, This is not according to what God has said. These are the commandments and doctrines of men. So dietary restrictions all deal with foods that once eaten perish. They are all very temporal things that, that don't really matter. Uh, Isn't it amazing how wrapped up people can get concerning things that are so temporal and and don't really matter? Uh, I remember as a young Christian uh, being involved in a church and a big church fight broke out over what people could eat and what they couldn't eat. You know, you got it's like, wow, really? Maybe we should study Colossians. Anyway, uh, under the reference here, Matthew 15, uh, the real issue is what is going on in the heart. God looks at the motives and morals of the heart. This is where the real issue lies. God doesn't care what you eat or what you don't eat. Rather, he cares about your heart attitude towards him. He cares about whether you love your neighbor as yourself. 
So under the reference there, according to the commandments and doctrines of men, here's the key issue. Asceticism is not really following the commandments of God, but rather is going by the commandments and doctrines of men. The commandments of men are what people say, and their doctrines are further explanations that are developed from them. Or, or, yeah, from them. But the point is, it's all based on the opinion of man. And then one more verse that goes with this section here, verse 23. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom. So get this. It looks like that's a really spiritually wise thing. They have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So here's the deal. In the practice of asceticism, on the surface of it, it looks like sincere devotion and piety. It looks very spiritual. It looks like these people are really serious about God and therefore they must be especially holy. On the surface, there is an appearance of wisdom. But notice he continues here, uh, in self-imposed religion. This is will worship. Uh, It's self-made religion. It's worshiping according to your own agenda, just like Cain did. You know, Cain and Abel, Abel brought the prescribed offering to God. Cain says, oh, I'm going to kind of change it up a bit and do what fits my liking. No, that's not how it works with God. These people are religious. The only problem is they do it their way instead of doing it God's way. Page 64. Now, if God said, beat your body, deprive yourself, and in doing this, you'll be holy. Well, then we ought to do it. You first. Go ahead. Knock yourself out. I'll watch. I'll see how that works for you. I'll come back in a day or two. But God hasn't said that. He has told us that all our righteousness is found in Jesus and that he died for us on the cross, not in what we do in self-denial. We're not trying to to beat ourselves to glory, uh, to whatever, deprive ourselves, to somehow make ourselves right. That's not what we're doing as Christians. The true believer is complete in Christ. I don't have to beat my body in this life or suffer in purgatory in the next one. I'm already complete. I'm complete. False humility. This very same trait was mentioned in regard to false teachers in 2.18. This is a phony humility, which is not biblical humility at all. It's a counterfeit humility. You know, like, oh, I'm fasting. I'm so humble. Look at me. You know, that idea. It's a false humility. Ascetic self-denial looks humble, but in fact it is not God-oriented. It is self-oriented or false humility. In truth, it masks spiritual pride. That's really what it does. Jump down to the bold and neglect of the body. The word neglect literally means uh, unsparingness. Uh, The idea is to treat the body harshly through self-denial or abuse. Neglect of the body, not taking proper care of it. It may look humble to deny yourself to the point where your body suffers and is weak and frail. But the fact of the matter is all these things, quote, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So here is the root. At root, the problem we have with sin is not an external problem. It's a heart problem. It's our sin nature problem that is referred to here as the flesh. We have a flesh sin nature that we are born with. And no amount of rules, ascetically imposed will worship, nor denying bodily appetites will will change this sin nature. At the end of the day, the indulgence of the flesh is still there. And in fact, the more rules you feed the flesh, the worse it gets. Give the flesh a rule and it will want to break it. I don't know why there is that forbidden fruit syndrome, you know. 
we kind of want to do what we're not supposed to do. That's wrong. I had a history teacher once tell me uh, that if you follow church history carefully, you will find that those most uh, fanatically committed to legalism and asceticism often had the greatest failures. The pendulum seemed to swing from one end to the other. Really, the problem is that they never truly knew the grace answer found in Christ alone. Okay, page 65. Come down uh, under the references there, uh, up at the top. Even for the believer, Paul does not deny the reality of the flesh. You know the thing about the flesh? You know, we got a sin nature. We got, we got this flesh. It, it never really gets any better. Now, we grow in maturity as we grow closer to Christ. But as far as that, that sin nature, it never goes away. The issue is how do you deal with it? How do you have victory over it? The answer is not found within yourself, but in the power of God who resides within the believer. We are to walk in the Spirit. There's the key. The Spirit is the power. Moment by moment, submitting to Him. The flesh cannot be changed. It's with us until the pearly gates. It's a battle to the pearly gates. That's why Paul says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Uh, We can fall. The flesh cannot be changed. It is what it is. No amount of asceticism will change it. I mean, you can just fast three days a week like the Pharisees. Fine. Do what you want to do. But that's not going to take away the flesh. However, we can be born of God through faith in Christ. And then we have God's spirit living within us to empower us. That is the key. That's the key. Down to the, towards the bottom of the page, we are complete in Jesus. Neither philosophy, legalism, mysticism, nor asceticism make any contribution to our spiritual lives at all. We need none of it. And we, all we need, we already have in Jesus. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord is our shepherd. We shall not lack. All we need is found in him. So, summary. Believers are complete in Christ. I hope you really believe that. That's what Colossians is teaching us. Everything we need is found in Christ. We're already complete. It's not like something's left out here. It's left up to me to finish it. Or No. Uh, we don't need philosophy. That's what he says. We don't need legalism. We don't need mysticism. We don't need asceticism. What do we need? Well, all we need, we already have. We have it right here in the book as far as uh, the knowledge that we need. We don't need some Gnostic mysticism that says, I'm getting some secret insights. I had a vision. Yeah, you and a bunch of other false teachers. Uh, Bottom of the page. Chapter 2 emphasized things that undermine the truth of Christ's sufficiency. But now we, as as we move into chapter 3, the emphasis is on living out what we have have spiritually and who we are in Christ. Chapter 2 emphasized the negative, that we should not be living according to the basic principles of the world. Whereas chapter 3 emphasizes the positive. That we should live in accordance with the the principle of Christ. He is the singular principle we need for Christian living. Okay, top of page 66. Uh, Note here, uh, at the top there, as we transition to chapter 3, we know the emphasis shifts from that which is mainly doctrinal to that which is mainly practical. Paul's pattern is to lay down the doctrinal foundation and then uh, to build practice upon it. Chapters 1 and 2 are largely doctrinal in nature, while chapters 3 and 4 are largely practical in nature. So we have the supremacy of Christ, chapter 1, the sufficiency of Christ, chapter 2, and now the sanctification of the believer, chapter 3 and chapter 4. 
Let's pick it up. Chapter 3, verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. The if here uh, in the Greek uh, is actually the construction uh, that carries the idea of since. Since. Uh, It assumes the reality of it. Next uh, paragraph. Those who are in Christ by faith, in God's eyes, positionally now share in the truth of his resurrection. We now share in his resurrection life. We share in Christ's accomplishments affirmed by his resurrection. We are now positionally seated with Christ in heavenly places. So we identify with, with our great representative, the one, the, the, our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Skip that next line. In chapter 2, immediately after emphasizing our completeness in Christ, in verse 10, Paul then emphasized the believer's union with Christ by saying in verses 12 through 13 that we have been buried with him and raised together with him. Here's the crux of the whole Christian life. It's all about union with Christ. If you are really in union with Jesus Christ, then your whole spiritual life is different. It impacts your whole spiritual life. This is the message of water baptism. Baptism is an outward testimony of your union with Christ. It doesn't make the union, but it does testify to it. It testifies that you identify with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. You know, as we're in the water, uh, that we are identifying with Christ's death, then his burials were put under, and then resurrection. We identify with Christ in that way. Uh, come down just uh, to the bottom of the page here, just above the bold there. Uh, this is essential to understand. When a person gets saved, then all the relationships of their life are instantly changed. Uh, anyone who's a Christ is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All the old relationships, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Uh, all things, all the relationships of life. What Paul is saying is that since it is spiritually and positionally true that you've been raised with Christ, then you ought to live accordingly. Live out the truth of who you now are in Christ. Uh, if then you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. For the believer, our life is now centered on that which is above. We are strangers and pilgrims on the earth. We've been born from above. We are now children that now relate to that which is above. Everything that ultimately matters for us is in heaven. Christ is there. Our citizenship is there. Our name is written down in the Lamb's book of life there. Our eternal home is there. Every spiritual blessing that is ours finds its source in heavenly places. The wisdom from above is to guide us. Every good and perfect gift is from above. Therefore, we ought to be preoccupied with the things that are above. It is what we ultimately identify with. Page 67. The word seek is in the present tense. Uh, It's a present tense imperative, meaning that it is a command to continually be seeking. Signifies ongoing, diligent pursuit. Skip that next paragraph. To consistently have our practice match our spiritual position requires discipline. It doesn't just happen automatically. So we're talking about our position on one hand, but then now our practice. Remember we laid down the position, uh, that's chapters 1 and 2. Now we're talking about our practice. Uh, we have to seek those things which are above. We have to make the heavenly our priority. We have to nurture an eternal perspective. The world is constantly in our face. It insists on our attention. But Paul is saying, you need to counter that by reorienting your priorities toward God. Note the context. Paul has just addressed unbiblical asceticism. This is the mindset that says being spiritual is a matter of outward man-made regulations of self-denial. You know, the, the focus is on below here, what's happening. 
Uh, note the ne- uh, skip that next paragraph. Instead, as Paul points out, the answer is found in our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the basis for spiritual victory. Focus on that reality, not on somehow in our own strength making the flesh perform properly. The power for Christian living is found in Christ, in our relationship with him. That is the key. And notice, uh, in terms of uh, set your mind on things above, he says where Christ is. This is where Christ is. Sitting at the right hand of God. Christ is, is above. He's seated in heaven at the right hand of God. What an encouragement. Christ is seated. Uh, this relates to the position of accomplishment, uh, triumph, and honor. Uh, it is interesting to know that in the Old, uh, in the old Testament at the temple, uh, they had no seats for the priests. They never sat down. You know why? I'm listening. Their work was never done. That's right. To sit down when Christ has gone back and sat down, his work of redeeming us was complete. Now, he's still involved in the high priestly ministry there. But as far as his, his, the work he came to do in saving us, that's completed. Note, uh, second paragraph in the bottom. Not only did he sit down, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is the ultimate position of honor and exaltation. As the God-man, as our representative, he now has the highest position in the universe. Next paragraph. A main reason we are to seek those things which are above is because Christ is there. He is our great high priest who ever lives to make intercession. Next page, page 68, second paragraph uh, down. In reality, all our resurrection blessings are associated with things above. Where Christ is found at the right hand of God, we ought to seek those things. We are to be preoccupied with the person of Christ, his plan, his purposes, his will, his power, his provisions. It's all about Christ and all that is found in him. Make this the priority of your life. Those things that relate to Jesus Christ and what involves Christ. It's amazing how many claim to be Christian never really make those things which are above the priority of their lives. Very Remain very tethered to this world. And of course we all are, you know. But uh, we're to live differently now. They spend their days focused on the things below. What, what a waste. The next paragraph. When, when you die, how will your life be summarized in one sentence? That's what they do in the paper, White. Right? You only get one sentence. You know, unless you pay big bucks, you can get a few more. But... Uh, You know, on your tombstone, probably just a few words. Uh, But how uh, will your life be summarized in one sentence? That's a good question to ask. Uh, What is the central priority in your life? What do you seek above all else? Is it the things related to this earth, to this life, to yourself? Or are you really seeking those things which are above? Notice what he says. Verse 2. Set your mind, your mind. uh, What are you doing with your thinker? Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. This is a great verse. Great verse. Uh, there are two present imperatives in Colossians 3, 1 and 2. The first is seek. The second is set. Uh, they go together. Thinking is foundational to everything else. As you think, so you do. If you set your mind on things above, then you will seek those things which are above. Note the whole emphasis for us as believers is to be related to things above. The word translated mind is the idea to think, to think. A key element in Christianity is thinking. I like to say that Christianity is a thinking person's religion. Uh, A lot related to the mind, to knowledge. 
Uh, Christians can get sloppy or lazy in their thought life. You know, like the old preacher says, sometimes people just just sits. Sometimes they sits and thinks, but sometimes they just sits. And uh, we are to engage our minds. It is interesting uh, that Paul uses this very same language in regard to unbelievers, only he says their mind is set on earthly things in Philippians 3.19. I can't emphasize this enough. The whole issue of sanctification relates to your mind, to your thinking. Uh, Okay, next paragraph. You are responsible for where you set your mind. Either it's set on things above or it is set on earthly things. As believers, we have the spirit living inside us. He is the greatest influence in our lives. But we also have the flesh. At any moment, we decide whether to yield to the flesh or yield to the spirit. Okay, page uh, 69. Don't set your mind on things on the earth. John says to believers, do not love the world nor the things in the world. D.L. Moody wrote on the flyleaf of his Bible, this book will keep me from sin or sin will keep me from this book. How true. The only message we have from heaven is this book, the Bible. Uh, The only truth that we have concerning the things uh, above is found in the Bible. Uh, You say, well, I'm just going to go out and look at a cloud. Well, that's that's fine. (laughs) I think he's thinking about uh, the things that we have from the revelation from God. Uh, in you know, a special revelation in the word of God. The biggest thing for Christians is that we need to learn to think properly. We need to bring every thought into captivity to Christ. And this is a, a present tense ongoing process. It's an ongoing battle. Uh, in my counseling ministry, which I prefer to call sanctification ministry or discipleship ministry, which is really what it is when people are having problems, I emphasize that they need to learn to think uh, differently. They need to learn to think biblically uh, Check it out. This is the root of Christian living. It all starts with a thought life. A a couple are having problems. Invariably, there is stinking thinking going on somewhere, right? Yep, that's true. Uh, They need to set their minds in a different direction. They need to align their minds with Scripture and set them on things above. This change of thinking biblically is called repentance. This is the solution. Simple, really, but not so easy to live it out. Verse 3. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul brings us back, uh, once again, to who we are spiritually and positionally in Christ. And he insists that we live in light of that reality. Uh, Come down towards the bottom of the page, that second paragraph there. Uh, We are now dead to the world, but alive to Christ. We have nothing to do with the world. Spiritually speaking, we're, we're no longer in a living relationship with the world. We're dead to it. The world is on a completely different page. It follows a different drummer. The orientation of our life is now completely different. Death here emphasizes our relationship with the world. Note that while we died, at the same time we have life, a life that is hidden with Christ in God. So our life is now hidden uh, with Christ in God. Note the language. We have, we have life in Christ, but it is spiritual and it is hidden. Well, in what way is it hidden? Well, the world cannot see our hearts. They can't see the spiritual realities that we know are true. They can't physically see our relationship with Christ. But they can and should see the fruit. Next page, page 70. Second line from the top. In this invisible realm is this spiritual sphere where we believers share in the life of Christ. And note three things here. Number one, we share in Christ's life. Number two, it is a secret reality that is hidden from the world. And number three, this union with Christ is secure. Secure. There's really a double emphasis on security here. Uh, Not only are our lives hidden with Christ, but also in God. 
This hidden union with Christ cannot be broken. It is a hidden reality, but a totally secure one. We are inseparably, uh, inseparably linked with Jesus. All right, let me close this in prayer, and then we'll have a little uh, time of refreshment here for about uh, 20 minutes, and then we'll be back at 7.30. Lord, again, we thank you for your word here, and uh, we thank you for uh, all that we have in Jesus, and that we are complete in him. Uh, Mysticism makes no contribution. Asceticism makes no contribution. It's all because of our identification with Christ and all that we have in him, the life that we now have in him. And now Paul's going to build on this as we go forward here into chapter 3 in terms of how we should then live. So, Lord, bless the refreshments. Bless our time of fellowship. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, why don't we uh, call ourselves to attention? We'll get started here. We're going to pick it up uh, on page 70. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 4. So let's, uh, let's get rolling there. Uh, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Looking forward to this. How about you? Wow. Going to be with him in glory. What a, what a day. No, Christ is here stated to be our life. It does not say that Christ merely gives us life. Rather, he is our life. Christ himself is life. And in saving faith, we actually receive him and his life. You know, that's, that's what it means to have eternal life. You now share in God's life, Christ's life, which is eternal. Uh, note, uh, middle of the page there. Um, note when it says, uh, when Christ appears, it is certain, but the timing is unknown. Christ will appear at the second coming, uh, but we, uh, we don't know when. Uh, the word appears means to make manifest, to reveal, to make plain or make clear. Probably what's in view here is the second coming. Is it the rapture or second coming? Uh, you know, commentators wrestle with that a bit. Probably the second coming. Uh, note the paragraph under that. <clears throat> the rapture is a sudden and hidden event as far as the world is concerned. They won't see it. It will happen in the twinkling of an eye. In contrast is the second coming, which will be a revealing to all of the power and glory of Christ involving an open manifestation of the bride of Christ with him. This is called the revelation of Christ. It is the grand subject of the book of Revelation. So uh, we think what's in view here is uh, not the rapture, which is when we're going to be taken, you know, in a nanosecond to caught up to meet the Lord in the air and he takes us back to Father's house. It's going to be an evaluation as far as rewards. And then, seven years later, after the tribulation period, we return as the bride of Christ with Christ uh, to the earth. And it seems like there's where we're really going to share in that that open manifestation of his glory as uh, we return with him. In effect, he's going to kind of show off his bride at that point. Page 71. Middle of the page there. Paul has challenged us as believers with the reality of our spiritual position in Christ. Uh, We are dead to the world and we are alive to God because of our identification with Christ. Well, he's really hammered that point. How many times have we said that? Uh, This is our spiritual position. The key to Christian living is the reality of a vital union with Christ. Now in verses 5 through 11, he challenges us to live accordingly. He challenges us to match our practice with our position. So we really get into some sanctification issues. Sanctification is kind of a $50 word, just means set apart. We're now set apart in Christ as belonging to him. So note, uh, therefore, ties back to what he just said in verses 1 through 4. 
Next paragraph. The, the verb translated put to death is strong. You know, it's kind of interesting. Uh, we are dead. That's our position in Christ. And yet in practice, we are to be killing. <laughs> we are to put to death uh, your members which are on the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. So uh, note that that verb translated put to death is strong. It means to kill decisively or resolutely. It means to slay utterly. Paul speaks of our body's members in a metaphorical way. Really, he's speaking of the sins committed in conjunction with the various members of the physical body. Bottom of the page. We saw in chapter 2 an unbiblical asceticism that seeks to earn God's favor through self-denial, which is based on man-made rules and regulations. Here in chapter 3, we have what some call a biblical asceticism. Uh, There is a proper denial of self in relation to sin. That's true. Top of page 72, Christ told us to take up our cross daily and follow him. Uh, This is dying to sin in our practical day-by-day experience. The essential idea is to radically deal with sin that wants to work its way out in our lives through our body. We're dead to sin, to to the old man, but now we must apply and practice what is true positionally. And so notice what he says here in terms of uh, what we are to put to death. Uh, Fornication. Fornication. The word fornication is a Greek word, pornea. Uh, It's a general word for any sexual perversion. Uh, It refers to any sexual activity outside the bounds of marriage. It's the word from which we get pornography. Paul has a number of sin lists in his writings, and normally sexual sin leads the list. Uh, note 1 Thessalonians 4.3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification. This is what sets us apart, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. I mean, the whole world is about this, but we are not to be. Uncleanness is linked closely to pornea. It simply means uh, moral impurity or moral filth. Paul is moving from the sex acts to the motives that drive sexual sin. Uncleanness marks a perverted mind that is absorbed with sexual fantasies. Passion is uncontrolled sexual desire. Evil desire, this word simply means desire that is normally translated lust. And covetousness, which is idolatry. The word covetous uh, literally means to have more. It can be translated greed. It's an insatiable desire for more of what is forbidden. And then uh, skip that next paragraph. Note the close connection between immorality, covetousness, and idolatry. These three are closely linked. Uh, These three are a family of sins that hang together. Sexual immorality is a god of sorts for many people. They put it above allegiance to the true God. Uh, People living in immorality invariably are also committing idolatry. This form of covetousness is the essence of idolatry. Anything that is put above God is an idol. Okay, let's go to the next page. Page 73 and Colossians 3, 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. You don't have to wonder what God thinks about this. Uh, immorality and all the things that go with it. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Why is it coming? Well, it's coming because of sexual sin. That's a key reason. It's not the only reason, but it's a key one. Uh, skip the next uh, paragraph. Note sexual sin is what characterizes the sons of disobedience. Notice what he said there. Uh, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Those that will not obey God. 
That is to say they are unbelievers. This is a designation of unbelievers. Yes, believers may fall, but it's not the unbroken pattern of their lives. And certainly believers can fall into sexual sin. David fell into sexual sin, as we see in the Old Testament. Uh, It can happen. That's why we have all the warnings in the New Testament. Uh, At the bottom of the page, the Bible still says, Hebrews 13, 4, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Okay, next page. Colossians 3, 7. In which you yourselves once walked when you lived in them. Note Paul is talking about what used to commonly characterize believers prior to their salvation. In which you yourselves once walked. It's different now, but you used to live this way. And say, so note there, this was uh, the past. You yourselves once walked in the past, he says. You lived in them, but not any longer. Conversion changed all that. The clear point is that ongoing sexual perversion is not the, uh, the defining trait of true believers, and we are to kill any hint of it in our experience. And uh, skip the next paragraph. We now come to the second list in this context. The first list had to do essentially with sexual sin. The second list has to do largely with the tongue or with sins of the heart that reveal themselves largely via the tongue. Commonly, these two areas uh, are the greatest challenge in regards to our sanctification. Colossians 3.8. But now you yourselves are to put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. The phrase put off was commonly used in reference to clothing. The idea is that we are to shed these particular sins like you would take off dirty clothes and discard them. Anger. Put off all these. Anger. Anger denotes a settled, smoldering attitude of being upset, bitter, resentful. Wrath means to explode with rage. Next page. Kind of go through the list here. Malice. Malice denotes a vicious disposition that wishes harm on others. You know, I, I wish you would get run over by a Mack truck soon. Malice. Blasphemy. This word literally means to speak injuriously. Uh, When used in reference to God, the sense is blasphemy. When used in reference to people, it's the idea of slander. Filthy language out of your mouth. In view is foul speaking, obscene speech, or abusive speech. It's crude, rude, dirty speech. It's vulgar, coarse, crass. Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Do not lie. One to, lying belongs to the category of sins just referenced, and yet it is mentioned by itself as though it is singled out for special mention. And then uh, get, uh, skip down to the next uh, sentence down there, next paragraph. Paul has listed various sins the believer should discard in terms of his practice, And now he returns to the truth of our position in Christ as the fundamental basis for this response. Since you have put off the old man with with his deeds. So in conversion, we have already put off the old man and his deeds. Put off here relates to our already established position. Next paragraph. This is not something to be done, but something that has already been done. In conversion, you already stripped yourself of the old man and his deeds. According to Romans 6.6, 6, the old man is dead. Galatians 5.24 says those who are in Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Colossians 3.10, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So notice that. Uh, we have put off the old man and have put on the new man. So we've had a change uh, of dress, so to speak. 
Put on the new man. In salvation, it's like Christ took your whole identity and changed it from the old to the new. The old man was identified with sin, Satan, and the world. Now the new you is identified with Christ, his righteousness, and his people. Top of page 76. It is like Christ removed the old robes of who we were in sin and has now placed on us the robes of righteousness in Christ. Again, this is an established fact. It's not something that needs to happen to you as a believer. It has already happened. Let's talk a little bit about our true identity. Man is made up of three parts, body, soul, and spirit. There's overlap between the soul and the spirit, making rigid distinctions difficult at some points. Uh, Body, uh, world consciousness, having five senses. Uh, Soul, uh, self-consciousness, having intellect, will, emotions, conscience, memory, imagination, affection. And all people are alive, uh, if they're living, uh, in their body and in their soul. But spiritually, they're dead. Uh, Spirit relates to the God consciousness, uh, related to faith, worship, spiritual insight, etc. So... uh, A note, uh, body, you know, soul, uh, related to the mind, the, the will, the emotions. But then the, the spiritual part of man, spiritually dead until we know Christ. And so uh, note what I say under the uh, diagrams there. When it comes to the old man and the new man, don't think in terms of the old man merely referring to the old sin nature or what is called the flesh and the new man merely referring to your new nature. It's more than that. Think in terms of the big picture of your whole identity. The old man is everything you were as an unredeemed person. That's the old man. It was your total identity before you were saved. The new man includes your new nature, but it's the totality of who you now are in Christ. It's your whole new identity in Christ. I state it this way for a reason. You now have a new nature that is wed to the Holy Spirit. And this new nature cannot sin. And it always wants to do what's right. But you also have that old, that flesh, that sin nature. And that's why there's, a, there's kind of a battle, a war that is going on inside you. But uh, note under the reference there, uh, it is the, the arena of the soul that relates to the war with sin. It is the soul that is the specific sphere that relates to spiritual growth and renewal. As I say, there's overlap between the spirit and the soul. But in general, I believe it is the soul that relates to our battle with sin and the issues of spiritual growth. And I quote Peter here, 1 Peter 2.11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshy lusts which war against the soul. So uh, note uh, this diagram here. In Adam, uh, the old man, uh, all we were prior to salvation, we, our sin nature and, and all that, that goes with it, that, that's who we are in Adam. But now in Christ, we're a new man. And, and that's really what he's talking about. Uh, all who we are, uh, what our makeup is in Christ, a new nature. Now, we still got that sin nature hanging around in the background, too. But it's not really who we ultimately are as far as our ultimate identity, as far as the new man. And we're to live according to this new man, not according to who we were prior. So that's really what we're talking about. And the cross makes the difference. When we come to faith in Christ, uh, we cross over from from death to life, dead to sin, alive to Christ. And we now have a new nature that's wed to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives us the power. The new nature has the desire, but it's the Holy Spirit that empowers us to live out the life.
Okay, page 77, top of the page. So when Paul speaks of the new man who is, who is now being renewed, he speaks of the whole new identity generally. But it is the soul in particular that relates to the issues of sin. However, I do want to emphasize that there is mystery and overlap here. For example, the heart, mind, and will, and conscience would uh, seem to relate to both soul and spirit on, on some level. And you get, you get how this is so uh, intertwined in Hebrews 4.12, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. And he's talking about those, those very intricate things in, in the spirit realm there. Okay, uh, jump down to the middle of the page here. Note the old man was not merely reformed, right? No. What happened to him? Oh, he died. He died. That's what happened to him. You're, you're not, that's not your identity. You died. There's been, there's been a, a death that took place here. He was totally replaced with the new man. The word new means new in time. It is that which did not exist before. In Christ, you are a whole new person. Different than anything you were before. It's a whole new beginning with a whole new identity. This is starting over completely. Who is renewed in knowledge. This whole new identity with special emphasis on the soul is now being renewed. It's being renewed. Bottom of the page, according to the image of him who created him. Here's the goal. We're being transformed into the image of our creator. In the fall of mankind, the image of God was effaced but not erased. Now in regeneration, the process of being conformed to the image of Christ is in place. Top of page 78. The more we know about Christ, and therefore deeply know Christ, the more we become like him as we apply this knowledge to our hearts and lives. Chapter 3, verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free, but Christ is all in all. I love this. What, what, what a time to cover this verse in, in history. We've got all these racial divisions, everything's going on here, and the world's trying to fix it. You think they got the answer? N- not on your life. But the gospel does. Christ does. Notice what he says. In Christ, in this new man, uh, there are not these distinctions anymore. It, in this sphere of the new man, there is neither Greek nor Jew. In other words, there, there's no distinction based on race. Circumcised and uncircumcised uh, represent religion. There's no distinction based on this either. The Greeks referred to those who did not speak their language as barbarian. Uh, They were considered uncivilized. Scythians were people from the Black Sea, Caspian Sea areas, and they were considered savages. And here's why. They were known as being violent, uneducated, and brutal, and not without reason. In war, it was the custom of Scythians for every man to drink the blood of the first man he killed. The historian Josephus called them little, little better than wild beasts. They're coming into this. <laughs> They're equals too. In Christ they are. Doesn't matter what the background is. So the terms barbarian and Scythian were put down terms used by the Greeks. They indicated cultural distinctions. Slave and free represent social distinctions. Next paragraph. With this background, Paul is saying there is no spiritual distinction. No matter what one's background is in terms of race, religion, culture, uh, culture, or social class, we as believers are now all part of the new man in Christ. We all share in this new identity without distinction. We're all spiritual equals. Wow. Skip the next paragraph. This phrase, Christ is all in all, is one of the greatest concentrated statements of truth in the New Testament. Boiled down, it simply says that Christ is everything to all believers 
And we all share in the same vital relationship with him. I love that. But Christ is all in all. What a glorious statement. Okay, page 79. Colossians 3.12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Therefore, in light of what Paul has just stated in terms of the believer's new identity in Christ, which renders all believers as spiritual equals in Christ, he now says this. As the elect, elect means chosen, as the elect of God, holy and beloved. Holy uh, means set apart. Beloved is a form of the Greek word agape, indicating God's love generated uh, by the will that seeks our highest good. And thus Paul reminds believers of their position in Christ. Go down to put on at the bottom of the page. In verse 10, Paul reminded the believer that he has already put on the new man. It's already an accomplished fact previously in place. Now he is saying to let your practice match your position. Live consistently with your new identity in Christ. That's his major point here. All the way through here. There's your position. That's established. Now you need to live consistent with that. Okay, page 80. The language of put on continues Paul's metaphor related to putting off and putting on clothing. In verses 8 and 9, Paul said to put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, and lying. Couple that with the sins of immorality listed in verse 5. These things we are to shed in our spiritual lives like dirty clothes. They are not appropriate clothes for the new man. No. Rather, the new man should be dressed up in virtuous clothing as found in verses 12 through 14. What, what's his clothing look like? Tender mercies, uh, more literally, bowels of compassion. We don't really speak in those uh, terms too much right now. But it sounds strange to our ears, but the Greek people associated deep emotions with the intestinal area, right? And we kind of get that a little bit. You know, I felt butterflies, my stomach, whatever. Um, but it's the idea of, uh, of a heart of compassion, Kindness denotes a helpful disposition. Humility uh, is to have a lowly frame of mind that esteems others more important than self. Meekness is not weakness. Rather, it's uh, controlled strength. The meek have a spirit of quiet submission to God-ordained authority. Long-suffering is literally wrath that is put far away. It's the idea of being very patient with people who try your patience. That's long-suffering. And then verse 13, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, which might happen. It's never happened here, thankfully. No, it does. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Bearing with one another. This is just plain putting up with one another. I love this little line, to live above with saints we love. That will be glory. To live with, below with saints we know. That's quite a different story. That's true. Next page, page 81. We need to tolerate each other in spite of ourselves. How's that for a new look? How's that for a, you know, nice new clothing? It fits the, man, the new man rather nicely. And I hope uh, you and I have uh, our bearing with one another clothes on. And by all means, keep these clothes on. Forgiving one another. Speaks for itself. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Paul specifically says this is a case in which 
you have a complaint against someone. Yes, they are blameworthy. Yes, they have done something wrong to you. What should you do? Smack them upside the head, of course. No, that's the wrong clothing. Got the wrong clothing on. No. Uh, Well, the attire of the new man is forgiveness. So you must forgive them. To what extent? Well, Paul says, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. If you're going to be walking in the proper clothing as a new man, that's that's what we have to do. Verse 14, but above all these put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Uh, skip a couple paragraphs here. Love is the final climactic article of spiritual clothing that completes one's spiritual attire. And so we got the clothing of the old man, the clothing of the new man. Okay, what's the old man look like walking around and you know, what's he dressed with? Well, <clears throat> immorality, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, covetousness, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language, lying. You don't want that to be what you're wearing in life. Rather put on the clothing for the new man. Tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, love. Okay, uh, top of page 82. Uh, Second paragraph. Speaking of these new outward virtues expressed in the language of garments, John MacArthur says this, Such behavior is the outward manifestation of the inward transformation, and it is the only sure proof that such transformation has taken place. Verse 15, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you were also called in one body and be thankful. Uh, Some manuscripts read here uh, Christ instead of God, but the sense is the same since Christ is God. Uh, Skip the next paragraph. Uh, Note the surrounding context back in verse 11. We read of equality in Christ as Christ is in all. Verse 13 emphasized bearing with one another and forgiving one another. In this very verse, the uh, completion of Paul's thought relates to our calling as one body. The whole context is emphasizing our relationships with one another in the experiences of body life. Rule uh, means to be an umpire, to referee, to express a decision, to decide between, or to arbitrate. Paul is saying to let the peace of God make the calls in your heart in relation to body life. That's the context, bottom of the page, to which you were also called in one body. We are called to let God's peace rule in the body of Christ. God wants his people to be at peace with each other. He himself has made it possible by reconciling us to himself and thus also uh, to each other. Okay. um, Top of the page here under the reference, the whole context assumes vital involvement in body life. Note uh, the one another emphasis. And be thankful. Uh, thankful for what? Well, in the context, we, I think the emphasis is for each other, for the fact that God has made us one and the unity we have in Christ. Colossians 3.16, uh, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word dwell in you richly, not sparsely. It's to saturate our lives. Page 84, I'm moving very fast now because I've got two minutes and... Two pages. But anyway, 84. Middle of the page. When the word richly dwells in you, then you are in a position to, in wisdom, instruct others. First, you have to know it. Teaching and admonishing one another. Teaching is positive. It is instructing and helping others to understand. Admonishing is negative in the sense it is corrective and warns. In psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, in the context of body life where godly wisdom is represented in hearts that are saturated with God's word, we uh, teach and admonish one another. And in that same context, we are to utilize singing. Singing aids us in our worship as well as learning. It's often said that the two great books in the church are the Bible 
uh, and the songbook. And of course, for the Jews, the, the songbook was the Psalms, and he, he mentions them here. But he also mentions hymns and spiritual songs. Hymns are thought to be praise songs, similar to the Psalms of the Old Testament, but with, with more of a New Testament emphasis. In essence, they are New Testament praise songs. Spiritual songs is general, referring to a wide variety of uh, spiritual songs. Okay, uh, page 85, and uh, come down to the middle of the page there. A variety of things is represented in what Paul says. The thing that really sticks out about the minimal instruction we do have here concerning singing is that there is to be a great variety when it comes to singing. Paul didn't list just one thing. Rather, he said psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And then he says, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Singing with grace is the idea of singing with gratitude or thankfulness. It is that which expresses joy, pleasure, and delight. We sing with our mouth, but it is to express worship from the heart and is ultimately directed to the Lord himself. All right, uh, let's have a closing word of prayer. Lord, we do thank you for our time in the word tonight. And Lord, we certainly see that uh, we are complete in Christ and we rejoice in that. But now, Lord, uh, you have uh, so equipped us that we are to live accordingly. Uh, The new man is to be put on display. Yes, we still have that flesh. And uh, it is possible to be wearing things we really want to set aside. Our position is clear. And Lord, we're to now live uh, consistent with our position in Christ. Help us to grow in grace as we uh, learn these things and study these things together as we become more like Christ. So again, we thank you for our time in the Word. May it bear fruit in our lives for your glory. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Good to see you all tonight. Hope you can come out tomorrow night.